Welcome to D.T. Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. I'm D.T. Kane, author of the epic fantasy series The Agersfar Saga and The Spoken Books Uprising. Each week, I read from one of my novels, discuss my writing process, answer your questions, and have general discussions about fantasy fiction. It's like a book club, except I do all the work for you. Find show notes, info about all my novels, and much more at dtkane.com. Here's the show. Hello, friends. Welcome back to D.T. Kane's epic fantasy book club. Uh, we will get started with the episode here in just one moment. Uh, just uh, to recap, because we stopped in the middle of a chapter last week, we will be reading the second half of chapter 38 of Declaimer's Discovery today, uh, starting on page 354 of the print book, if you're following along. In there, uh, you may recall, Dell uh, just got to the site of uh, the Triumvirate Congress. Uh, it's at a place called the Main Neck, which is an amphitheater that's kind of uh, carved into a cliff face right on the ocean vast. Um, and Dell just ran into Farston, and Farston is about to introduce him to uh, the other members uh, of the Congress. So, uh, without further ado, here is Chipper 38, Part 2 of Declaimer's Discovery. The dais was arranged with six luxurious leather seats that gleamed just as brightly as Farston's boots. Three of the chairs were already occupied. Farston began by introducing him to the representatives from Fortune and the Conservatory. As the Congress chair, Farston represented all of Oration, not his home city, though, practically speaking, his status as both chair and a resident of Fortune meant Fortune had two representatives in the Congress, which was why the chairmanship was so highly coveted. Fortune's representative was Duke Meacham of Rovery Library, a man with several chins and graying hair. He had trouble rising from his tufted seat when Farston introduced Dell. Meacham made no secret of his confusion over Dell's lack of a hat or any sort of entourage. The Duke Rovery had four speakers standing at his back, one chained to each leg of his chair, and a pair of harpers with razors drawn, their eyes roving over the crowd as it continued to grow. The Duke's palm was damp with sweat as Dell shook it, and despite the smile of greeting and kind words, the man's sagging eyes showed he'd already judged Dell unworthy of the post to which he'd been appointed. Dell barely contained a scowl as he returned the man's words of greeting with polite ones of his own. The representatives from the conservatories in Fortune and Enigma were a diverse pair. There ought to have been a third representative from erstwhile, but there obviously hadn't been time to summon a replacement for Liana after the cityless attack. 
Despite having two representatives, the conservators only received a single vote, meaning there were four votes total for any measure under the Congress's consideration. The chair broke ties as needed. The conservator from Fortune was a tall, thin man with swarthy skin and coarse, dark hair, cut only marginally longer than that of a speaker. He eyed Dell with unconcealed contempt, though that wasn't uncommon for conservators. They seemed to think themselves above even readers, though they had little true power of their own. The conservator from Enigma was altogether different. He was short and had skin like ill-cared-for leather. Instead of a white robe, he wore a fur-lined coat over top a stiff-necked white shirt that covered most of his throat. How could the man stand to wear such clothing in this boiling weather? A necklace of worm teeth hung around his neck, just like the one Rox had given to Bastion during the trials. Unlike his colleague, the Enigman conservator actually shook Dell's hand. A difficult task is given to us the Enigman said. Dell inclined his head, unsure of how else to respond. After thinking a moment, he said, The words mean what they mean, Master Restorer. The Enigman nodded as if Dell had said something profound. And this, Farston said, guiding Dell to the final seat on the dais, is the representative from Enigma. Permit me to introduce... Duchess Adalexa Stonebinder. Stonebinder? The Enigman obsession with truth created a number of oddities, their names among them. Even those had to hold some sort of truth. Odd, though. Stonebinder held some familiarity in Dell's mind that he couldn't quite place. The Enigman trio was dressed in fur-lined coats, just as the Enigman Conservator was, though theirs had Pront V. Lextor's scales stitched on either shoulder, the sigil of Enigma City. The similarities between the three ended there, though. The speaker was the easiest of the three to identify. He was surprisingly old for a speaker. His wispy hair was thinning at the scalp which was another rarity, since Dell had never seen a speaker with hair long enough to be called Wispy. His brand, the scales of an influencer, was askew on his forehead, so that it looked as if the scales were tipped in one direction. He had an iron chain around his otherwise bare neck that had apparently been there for much of his life, judging by how the skin about it was calloused and scarred and his eyes, or rather eye sockets, for he had no eyes, were like wrinkled fruit pits. His aged skin had yellowed like parchment, curling around the edges of the sockets so they appeared much smaller than they ought to be. Dell shuddered, momentarily reminded of his dream. Next was what had to be the harbor of the group, she was shockingly tall, perhaps taller than rocks, if not quite as beefy. She wore a helm fashioned from the skull of a worm, its teeth still intact so that her face peered out from a sea of knife-like incisors. 
Her dark hair was worked into many braids, secured by small bones, clacking like the snapping of many crows' beaks as she moved. Much of her hair was dyed in icy blue, a color that matched her eyes. Her nose was bulbous and crooked as if it had been broken more than once. She held the speaker's chain wrapped in one meaty fist, and rather than a razor, she had two long blades strapped to either side of her waist. It was difficult to say whether they were swords or very long daggers. They started narrow at the hilts and grew wider until they were nearly wide as cleavers toward their ends. Near each blade's terminus they arced upward, such that the bottom edge was curved while the other remained straight. The reader looked like a child in comparison to the harbor. She barely reached the harbor's chest. Her blonde hair was so pale it almost appeared white and was tied back in a single braid that fell halfway down her back. She had the same icy eyes as the harbor, and her lips were set in an expression of such stern consideration that she appeared to have swallowed them. Perhaps most curious of anything about the Enigman trio, though, was that she had a razor slung over one arm. "'Duchess at Alexa,' Dell said, bowing to the diminutive woman. "'Pleased to make your acquaintance.' The woman's lips curved upward. It was a smile, though it had the look of an expression that one friend might give another when he's realized the other has done something very stupid. "'Please pardon my appearance,' Dell said, feeling a need to respond to the woman's look. "'I apologize if I've—' <laughs> The giant woman, standing behind the one to whom Dell had bowed, threw out an arm, wrapping fingers the circumference of wagon axles around his neck. She lifted him clear off the ground until Dell was at eye level with her. Dell thrashed his legs about a good two feet clear of the earth. I am Adalexa Stonebinder. Her voice was akin to a lightning strike upon a mountain peak. And you are Torchsire? The rumbling tone sounded peculiarly like Rox's, though where his was like an earthquake, the giant woman's was more like a hurricane, pitched like a wailing wind and just as ferocious. My father once met a man named Torchsire. He stole my brother from us. Her brother? Suddenly, between his choked gasps for breath, Dell recalled where he'd heard the name Stonebinder. Rox had only shared it with him once or twice. Dell's giant protector rarely spoke of the life he'd left behind in Enigma, and Dell had been just a babe when his father had returned from a trading expedition with a young Rox in his possession. But Rox had mentioned once that, while every Enigman values truth, a stonebinder can never lie, for they lead Enigma and must set an example by which all others may live. Dell had never thought to take Rox's statement about leading Enigma literally, but apparently he should have. Dell tried to tell Ad Alexa that Rox was here, in the city, but could get no words out around her fingers, which squeezed about his larynx like the jaws of a ravenous dog. He tapped at her fingers desperately, already feeling the strength draining from his limbs as they cried out for air. 
Duchess Adelexa, if you please. Farston's voice was like a lullaby sung by a man who just ordered the death of innocence, serene and disturbing all at once. We are here for the good of the nation, not to air personal grievances. Adelexa's fingers immediately released Dell, and he tumbled to the dais's cobbled floor, coughing and spluttering for air. The giant enigman looked startled, as if surprised she'd actually released Dell. I do apologize, Farston said. If I'd known the history between your libraries, I would have warned you both ahead of time. Farston's tone sounded about as genuine as a gilt-plated stone, and the apologetic smile he turned toward Dell was no more true. None of the gathered readers moved to aid Dell in rising from where he'd fallen, but eventually the conservator from Enigma grabbed his arms and hoisted him back to his feet. Rubbing at his neck and still gasping, Dell gave the conservator a nod of thanks before turning back to Duchess Alexa. Why had Rox never told him that he had a sister? My <coughs> lady, Dell said, voice like a rasp over dry wood. I <coughs> do apologize for <coughs> mistaking you, but you are also mistaken. My father did not steal your brother. He won him in a bet, fairly played. Won him? Her right hand went to the hilt of one of her blades. A sack of beans can be won. A horse can be won. These, she rattled the chain around her speaker's neck, can be won. A child of the stonebinders cannot be won. He is not chattel to be traded. Your father is a cheat and a liar. He tricked. My father is no such thing, Del said his own hand moving to rest on the hilt of his rapier. I demand you retract that slander. Or what, child of lies? Do you wish to face me in combat? Dell grimaced, though it was more so over the name she'd called him than the prospect of fighting at Alexa. Likely any duel would be stopped before he suffered serious injury, but child of lies? It was too close to how he'd felt about his life of late. No one could know that but him, well, and Farston, but he couldn't let such insult pass in front of so many people. Important people. Would you call a man with whom your brother entrusted his razor a liar? He slung the massive weapon off his shoulder, the weight of it making a loud clang as it impacted the stones of the dais. Adelexa snarled, one of her butcher's blades clearing his sheath faster than Dell could blink and coming to rest along his jugular. You twist my words. I do no worse than an enigman, Dell said. He ought to have been shaking in his boots. No one would have blamed him given the immediate prospect of death he faced. Yet, instead, he felt emboldened. Farston would likely reveal his secret soon, which guaranteed his life's end already. It was amazing how free one could feel in the face of death. A chuckle from beside Dell drew both his and Adelexa's attention. It was the conservator from Enigma. The giant woman's blade left Dell's throat to point at the laughing man. 
Quiet your tongue, Aiden, or I will free you from its flapping. The conservator appeared entirely unconcerned, considering Adalexa with a sparkle in his eyes. Dale gripped his rapier once more, considering whether he ought to take advantage of the woman's diverted attention. Marquis Deliritus, Duchess Adalexa, Farston said, perhaps another time when there are not so many people watching. Dell glared at Farston, but then looked out into the crowd. The main neck was nearly full, and had grown surprisingly silent given the number of people pressed onto the grass-covered benches and standing in the aisles. Right, muttered Dell. Apparently, if he was going to shame his family and all of erstwhile, he was going to do it in spectacular fashion, not only coming ill-dressed and unescorted to the Congress, but challenging another of its representatives to a duel before it even officially begun. He released his grasp on the hilt of his rapier and stepped back from Adalexa. My lady, I apologize for any slight you believe my family has wrought upon your own. But while I am my father's son, I am not my father, and Rox has been my trusted protector for many years. He swore an oath to me, and as he is often wont to remind me, he would rather die than break it. Adalexa turned back to Dell, her blade returning to a precarious perch just above his clavicle. She looked as if she were still considering spilling his blood, despite Farston's admonition, but then Conservator Aiden said from beside Dell, "'The words mean what they mean, Duchess Adalexa.' Somehow, the Conservator's tone held a hint of irony, one that Dell didn't understand. He certainly didn't sound nearly as serious as rocks when he used that phrase." Adalexa glared at Aiden, the teeth of her helm causing her to appear more sinister than angry. But she sheathed her blade and muttered in reply, The words mean what they mean. Del released a long breath. Wonderful, Farston said in a feather-like tone. Now that that's resolved, please take your seats. We will now commence this special session of the Triumvirate Congress. All right, hello, DT crew. Welcome back to DT Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. Today is May 7th, 2023. As I record this, which is episode number... Oh, of course, my computer froze when I needed to see what the date was. <clears throat> or what episode number we were on. Um, <laughs> this is one take, people. Uh, episode number 36 of season two of the podcast and episode number 63 overall. I should really write that down on a post-it note or something before I hit record, but oh well. <clears throat> uh, so welcome back. Hope everyone enjoyed wrapping up chapter 38 of the Claimer's Discovery there. Uh, we meet Rox's sister, um, Bit of a surprise there. So Rox is uh, related to the current leader of Enigma, or at least one of the one of the leaders of Enigma, right? Duchess Adalexa Stonebinder. And uh, you may recall from 
uh, book one that uh, Rox told Baz that he had a younger sister uh, back in Enigma, which would appear to be at Alexa. Um, so uh, that would seem to mean that Rox was in line to be a, a duke in Enigma if he had not become Dell's Harbor. So uh, how interesting is that? Um, certainly uh, that will be relevant down the road at some point in the Spoken Books Uprising. Um, so just an interesting point there. Uh, all right, so next week we will start reading chapter 39. Let's see, how long is that? Uh, goes on for a bit here. And we'll probably read the first half of chapter 39 next week. I am trying to keep these episodes to around a half hour now. Um, I do think... I know some of you like the longer episodes, but I think uh, a lot of people uh, do not like the super long episodes. And also, frankly, it's just a little easier for me if the episodes are shorter. So I know we're moving uh, through this maybe a bit more slowly than we did with the first book. Um, but yeah, the first half of chapter 39, since it's a long one. Um, and yes, uh, I guess we are moving through this slower than the first book, but Declaimer's uh, Discovery is also quite a bit longer than the Actus Trial, so there's that as well. But yes, we'll start Chapter 39 next week. Uh, let's see, in other podcast news, uh, I do think I am going to try the idea that I threw out there uh, last week on the podcast and in the newsletter, try doing a uh, a book club <laughs> type situation uh, with something other than my own book, where we uh, read an agreed-upon book on our own, and then we have a uh, an episode where uh, I talk about it, and uh, I may even bring a uh, a guest co-host on to to discuss it. So that might be fun. Uh, so I think the first one we're gonna read is uh, "Riddle Master of Head" by Patricia A. McKillop. Uh, I have been meaning here. I'm holding it up on the uh, video here for. For those of you to see now, this version that I have is the complete trilogy in one book. Uh, Riddle Master of Head is only the first like hundred and sixty pages of this or so, uh, and that's one thing I'm going to be sensitive about as well. I'm going to try to pick uh, shorter, shorter books, maybe books that are a little less known. I think most serious fantasy fans will have heard of Patricia McKillop, but she's obviously not uh, quite as well known as uh, some of the the bigger names. So. I'm going to try to give some love to some of those. So many other people have talked about things like, you know, The Lord of the Rings or uh, The Stormlight Archives by Brandon Sanderson or, you know, Joe Abercrombie's dark fantasy work. So I'm going to try to do a few slightly lesser known works. Um, so, yeah, let's see. Why don't we aim to collectively, if you're interested in participating, aim to collectively try to finish reading uh, Riddle Master of Head. Uh by let's say the end of June. So uh, I think if this works out, we'll probably do it on a monthly basis. Um, but for now, since this is a, a new thing, I want to give everyone time to, to clear the decks and, and time to read the book. So I'll be uh, reminding folks on future episodes and I'll post about it in the newsletter as well. And then um, maybe after the July 4th holiday here in the, in the United States, we will, uh, We'll have our discussion episode about it. So again, Riddle Master of Head 
by Patricia McKillop. Again, that's just the first book of the Riddlemaster trilogy. We're not going to be discussing the whole trilogy, at least <clears throat> not on uh, this first uh, pilot episode of the uh, the book club inside the book club here. Uh, okay, so I'm uh, kind of excited about that. We'll see. We'll see how that goes. I'll probably be uh, soliciting people to send in their their questions or discussion points about that as we uh, get closer to the air date of that that episode. Um, I also uh, I got some enthusiastic uh, survey responses about my hat <laughs> uh, when I posted the survey uh, about the book club last week in the newsletter. So so thanks for that. I will uh, I'll wear the hat on the uh, book club discussion episode for sure. Uh, all right, so that brings us up to. Um, our fantasy quote of the week. Uh, and since uh, it was Cinco de Mayo on Friday, um, I tried to pick some sort of a <laughs> Wild West type cloak type quote, or at least uh, a book. Uh, so I went with The uh, the Gunslinger by Stephen King. Um, <clears throat> so let's see. I guess that's really more about the, uh, the American West, not the... Uh, uh, the uh, not Mexico, but but whatever. I'm not trying to. <laughs> hopefully, I'm not offending anyone uh, out there. This is just all in uh, all in good fun for the uh, for the Cinco de Mayo weekend here. Um, but okay, so like I said, this is from Stephen King's uh, Gunslinger. So this is actually the first book, which is called The Gunslinger. I think people often refer to it as the Gunslinger series as well, uh, though. Uh, or I think it's actually the the Dark Tower series, right? Whatever. Here's the quote. <clears throat> Size defeats us, for the fish, the lake in which he lives, is the universe. What does the fish think when he is jerked up by the mouth through the silver limits of existence and into a new universe where the air drowns him and the light is blue madness? Um, so like I said in the newsletter here to kind of introduce the essay this week, I've been reviewing some of my favorite writing advice lately as I deal with some of the... Uh, the ups and downs of drafting my next novel here. Uh, some days I feel great about it. You know, other days the the self doubt the self doubt kind of uh, uh, rears its ugly head, pushes in, uh, despite my best efforts <laughs> uh, to keep it at bay. Um, if you've been keeping up, if you've been keeping up with the the newsletter, you'll know uh, my current work in pro- progress is, has become quite large. Uh, which is, I guess, is good news for all of you out there. You're going to get a nice big book to read once I'm done with it. But, uh, you know, I'm going to have to go back and edit this whole thing, and it's going to take a while. Uh, I said, I don't know if I've talked about it on the podcast before, but um, <clears throat> um, editing time is not proportional to uh, the length of the finished product, at least uh, not for me. I find the longer... <clears throat> uh, the longer a draft becomes, uh, it's not like a one-to-one ratio of uh, drafting time versus uh, editing time. Uh, it takes a lot longer to edit a longer book because you have to, you know, just make sure things are staying straight. Uh, there's usually uh, more than one perspective in longer books, which is the case uh, in Spoken Books Six, Fire and Ink. There are two main perspectives and then you know a couple other perspectives also mixed in there so lots of moving parts to keep track of so so anyway it's just a a a bit more of a monster than some of my uh more simply plotted books 
uh, which many of the previous entries in the series have been. Um, you know, and there are some times when I feel like it is never going to end. Like I'm never going to be able to finish this thing. Um, so I, I didn't really know what I was going to write for the essay this week, but when I uh, stumbled on this quote from the gunslinger that I just read, it reminded me of some excellent advice that I took to heart when working on my first novel. Um, I think it applies to other types of work too, not just writing. So uh, if you're working on another sizable project that isn't necessarily writing-based, or at least not a novel, um, I think this is applicable to, to many other areas as well. But uh, when embarking on an extended project, you can't constantly zoom out and review how far you are from the finish line. That only makes it feel like an insurmountable task. You need to develop tunnel vision. Writing a whole novel might seem impossible, but writing a hundred words is doable, or a thousand, or fifty, whatever daily goal works for you. Uh, in other words, you break the enormous... Ooh enormous. In other words, you break the enormous task into small, easily achieved chunks, build momentum, then repeat until completion. Each day you'll feel better having accomplished your micro-goal and won't feel the existential dread over the impossibility of climbing a mountain in a single day. Uh, related to this is the somewhat cliched principle that you need to enjoy the journey. Finishing a project is great, but the sense of accomplishment or praise or reward or whatever it is that waits at the project's end is fleeting. A reporter once asked tennis star Chris Evert how long the thrill of winning Wimbledon lasted. She responded, about an hour. Now, there's nothing wrong with achievement, but just keep in mind that the high of reaching that goal will be fleeting. Most of your time will be spent working toward it, and what sort of life are you living if you only enjoy yourself during those ephemeral moments of accomplishment? So stop being anxious about reaching the finish line and start enjoying the process of putting one foot in front of the other. Uh, and just a, uh, a footnote here for those of you who are perhaps uh, considering uh, writing a novel. Um, if you write just 250 words a day, that's over 90,000 words in a year. Uh, and there you have the first draft of your novel. So, you know, those small building blocks do add up over the course of time. 90,000 words is actually longer uh, than the Actus Trials or right around... No, I guess that's that's just about how long the Actus Trials was. So uh, I like to consider the Actus Trials definitely a... Uh, <laughs> Certainly a full-length novel, so if you write just those 250 words a day, you'll uh, at least have your, your first draft there. So, you know, you aren't doing anything wrong if you're, if you're working slowly, as long as you're making consistent progress. <clears throat> um, all right, so that's it. Again, I feel like I've rambled <laughs> a bit here, as I do sometimes uh, in these uh, after-narration segments, but uh, that's how it is. Um, and I do occasionally get a uh, a kind email from you all out there saying you you appreciate these segments. So uh, thank you for that. And uh, that's how they're going to keep me in. So, <laughs> so there you go. Uh, all right. So like I said, next week we're going to be reading Chapter 39 of Declaimer's Discovery, at least the first half of it. Uh, so until then, this has been D.T. Kane's Epic 
Fantasy Book Club. Thanks for listening to D.T. Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. If you liked today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're watching on YouTube, give this video a thumbs up if you liked it and hit that subscribe button and the bell so you get notified whenever new episodes become available. If you'd like to listen to back episodes or review the show notes, visit dtkane.com slash podcast. D.T. Kane's novels are available for purchase at most major online retailers, or you can purchase directly from his website at www.dtkane.com books. You can receive a free short story and sign up for D.T. Kane's mailing list at dtkane.com email dash sign up. If you'd like to connect, you can find D.T. Kane on Facebook at D.T. Kane Author or Twitter at D.T. Kane Author, or send D.T. Kane an email at dtkane at dtkane.com. See you next week.